0: trigger warning this podcast contains a deep discussion about domestic abuse and sexual abuse which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting so please listen with caution. Venters, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast as always is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I am your host Freddie Cocker, and at time of recording we are almost at the end of 2021. We're just coming up to Christmas, so if you are listening to this, I hope you have a happy, a safe and a positive Christmas and New Year's Eve and hopefully 2022 is a very great year for you as well. Maybe 2021 wasn't your year, maybe 2021 was your year, but whatever it was, I hope you have a great one. So, as you may know by now, each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else that they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. (laughs) In this week's episode, I'm talking to another next-door neighbour of mine in my building. Sarah Essuf is a business development manager for Timeline Television and has worked in the media industry for over 12 years. In this episode, we talk about Sarah's journey into media, work-life balance, workplace anxiety, and the competitive and oftentimes cutthroat nature of the industry. We also discuss Sarah's experiences travelling to Australia, New Zealand, and the USA, where she went to Camp America, how that has shaped her life, and the friends she has made along the way. We also talk about Sarah's lived experience of domestic abuse. Sarah was in a coercive controlling relationship with an ex-partner who abused her physically, verbally and on a few occasions sexually. We chart the journey of how the abuse started and the reasons why, how she escaped that relationship, the red flags that you and the listeners can look for if someone is being domestically abused in your life, man or woman, and how, through treatment and support, Sarah has healed her trauma and started to take back control of her life. So this is how my conversation with Sarah Essuf went. Sarah Esuf, welcome to the Just Checking. I practiced that, by the way. I practiced that before we did this. Yes, welcome the to Just Checking Pod. Oof. Oof, okay. Yeah, Sarah Essuf. How are you? How are you um, getting on? Yeah,
1: good, mate. So far, just been taking lateral flow tests, basically. That's Same. that's my life yeah. right now. Yeah. I did one before I came, and then I realized I didn't have any milk, but I didn't want to go to the shop have to then come back do another test, so I was just left it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is coming down from the second floor. No problem. All the way down. It's a long trip, you know. The commute, yeah. must, have, the commute must have been hard. Do you know what? Exhausted. No, no foot traffic, so. <laughs> <laughs> what was it, 30 seconds? If 15 that. seconds, if that. Yeah. Okay. We've got so much to talk about on this pod, mate, and I'm really proud of you for agreeing to come on because I imagine not many people will know the entire journey we're about to discuss. I imagine some people, some of your close friends will know a lot of it. But maybe, what, 20%, 30%, 40%? Yeah,
1: some some no bits, but, yeah, not many people know the overall story of... of the overarching story. Exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly. So, yeah, a little bit nervous. We'll ease in. We'll, we'll ease in. E- yeah, Don't yeah,
0: worry, yeah. mate, we'll ease in. Without further ado, because we've got so much to crack on with, shall we start the show? Let's do it. I want to ease into the podcast, Sarah, and talk about your media journey first, because this is what you've done for... What, the best part of 10 years?
1: Well, yes. I was thinking about this the other day. It's closer to 15, wow. actually. Wow, okay. I know, that, I look so young.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Lucky it's an audio podcast, eh?
1: <laughs> Cheers, mate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Listeners won't be, able to, uh, won't be able to do anything with that. <laughs> Let's unpack it a little bit to start then. Tell me how you first got into it and maybe why you were inspired to do it. Because it's not just journalism. It's the whole media landscape, isn't it, that you do?
1: Yes. When I was like... Younger, I was always fascinated by like TV, radio, that sort of thing. Was a bit of a show off, a so. nerd. Well, yeah, yeah like, just, but in a
0: good way, positive sense. Yeah, yeah, like
1: recording little, you know, walking around with a rolling pin, interviewing people, and you know, like. Oh, that sounds that, so- that sounds <laughs> like a film nerd. <laughs> yeah. So when it came to choosing something for university. I don't know about you, but certainly when I was at school, they didn't really give you too much career guidance. No, it was
0: be all and end all university. And then what did you do if you. Yeah. You, yeah
1: and yeah. even like now, looking back, would I have chosen this course? So I chose a course, the degree was Media and Cultural Studies, which is basically something at the university I wanted to go to that seemed interesting. And then while I was there, really got into doing student radio. And radio was where I was headed. That's Mm. You know, TV wasn't even really... Was it sort of
0: radio DJ sort of format? Yeah, radio DJing. DJing. Johnny Vaughan and (laughs) that sort of... Yeah, DJing (laughs) at the Student Union.
1: All these sort of things. Producing shows, getting to grips with equipment and also doing my degree on the side. So, yeah, that was where my sort of passion was. That's where I thought my career would go.
0: Did your degree give you that? Or was it something you had to kind of learn outside of it?
1: Yeah, so instead of doing a dissertation, you could choose to do sort of like a production-based... I guess it was like a project and so I chose radio for that and you would do like the write-up on that and how you would like basically format a show from production to execution so that part of it I really enjoyed because I didn't really fancy sitting writing a huge (laughs) master dissertation I got to like you know muck around in the studio and and make radio.
0: What were those student days like you know I talk a lot on the podcast about the importance of making mistakes and what we learn from them and how we use them to take our lives forward. So were there any sort of particular mistakes you can share that <laughs> stick out in the mind?
1: I mean, a lot of the mistakes were basically, where did the years go? A lot of people have done similar things in their youth. There was a lot of partying, mm. you know, s- substance sort of taking, drinking, going out every single day of the week, not going into uni a lot of the times, probably my second year and then having to claw it back in my third year. But nothing. A lot of that- cramming then. Yeah. yeah. And then juggling jobs as well. I had about two or three jobs at one point, working at the radio station, doing the student radio, working as a waitress. Looking back, I'm like, I don't know how I fit it in, but managed to come away with
0: the degree. You no find regrets. a way, don't you, in uni somehow? Yeah. After university, you decided to do Camp America, which I was actually quite tempted to at the time. I think my small town mentality was a little bit too scared of doing it. Maybe I don't know what the process was, but I ended up doing Barracudas in the end. I believe It gave you the travelling bug, didn't you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, from a young age, have always been quite independent. Like, I love where I grew up. I grew up in a small village in Hertfordshire, but I always had this like need for wanting to sort of like explore or like go somewhere. So that's why even my university choice was Liverpool. It's like four oh, hours okay. away in a car. Yeah, yeah. You know, I could have easily chosen the university in London or yeah. in and around Essex or. No but one I'm who t- lives
0: in London, by the way, studies in London. Yeah, yeah. Fair, fair. <laughs> I knew about two people in my entire network who actually studied at <laughs> so university in. So similar, right?
1: Let's go. Let's get <laughs> out of it. So my brother did Camp America, and when he came back, it just sounded like the biggest adventure. Mm. So I thought, well, if he can do it. And he's quite a homebody. Well, he was then, anyway. He's he's not now. I was like, right, I'm going to sign up. But unfortunately, I was going to do it in the summer of my second year. But because of the said partying and not really going mm-hmm. in, I had a few retakes, right. <laughs> so I couldn't go.
0: <laughs> we we'll just skirt over those. Yeah, yeah. So
1: that's that was a motivation to like get my stuff together and really make sure that I catch up, get everything in order, and then yeah, because the that same... whole
0: block would have been taken out basically. Yeah. So Camp you.
1: America. Yeah, yeah. So Camp America runs. You have to get there in like June. Because mm. it's like pre-camp and like setting it all up and all this stuff. So yeah, it was um, my third year. I passed my exams and it was either go to my graduation or go and do Camp America like I wanted to the year before. Oh, so wow. I, I missed the graduation. Really? And I went, yeah, on my own. Didn't it's quite I a only- big
0: decision. Just I know, I know it's one day, but it's that's quite a big decision to make, isn't it? Because of the whole... And a memories aspect of it, seeing people for the last time from your uni, you know, was that yeah. was that
1: difficult? I just, I think I was like, well, this chapter's closing, I wanna, let's go and do the next one. I yeah. had a real like energy. About me back then, I just mm. thought I want to go and do it. I didn't have any
0: FOMO from it or anything like that. None, at all? Or, okay, none. Well, that's, well, that's well good then. because
1: it turned out to be a really positive experience. Yeah, yeah. If it had gone the other way, I might <laughs> be like, like, Oh, damn, yeah, why Why did I do this? I missed out on so much. My mum and dad don't have the photo up in the hallway of me in the cap and gown. Like, I took that away from them, but yeah, luckily it was one did of you the do best. Do a stage one, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, can I borrow my brother's? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, luckily for me, I it was still to this day probably one of the best things I've ever done, just in terms of the independence of it going you know flying back then you know I didn't even have a mobile phone that worked abroad you know like to have a phone then that worked overseas you know I didn't have the money for that so I remember ringing when I got to um, Newark airport in New York not even JFK ringing on a payphone the camp director who then sent his driver to come and pick me up and I just wow. had to wait for this like mini. This isn't that
0: long ago either. Technology really yeah. has yeah. like really motored. <laughs>
1: and it was a real adventure. I was just like sitting there. but had that fearlessness. Like now I'd be like, is that safe? Like mm. who would do that? Like, and, Ironically,
0: uh, as technology has become more connected than ever. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah.
1: So yeah, he picked me up and then the adventure began. And I met some of the most incredible people from all over the world. Some of which are still my best friends today. And uh, yeah, that led me on other chapters of my life but yeah the reward you get just sort of coaching and teaching these kids i ran the radio station there so it's like mixing you brought those skills yeah mixing my passions and like you know like i love obviously radio but like i was working with a lot of sort of like teenage sort of kids Mm. and you know some of them have had it really rough it was a predominantly jewish summer camp and um not long before i went in 2007 so it wasn't too far off of 9-11 and a lot of them had lost parents in that oh um God. yeah it was yeah it was hard like so they had parents visiting days and so we'd have to be pre-warned just so you know that like, their dad won't be there because yeah Jesus. so it was just so, so close to york, home then, or yeah yeah so area. it right, was upstate okay. new york yeah. and a lot of them sort of lived in and around various districts of new york so mm. yeah just sort of really like hit home because obviously you see these things on the news and i was in my little small town in hartfordshire watching something that was a global event and all of a sudden
0: you see the reality uh, There's like one it,
1: degree yeah. of separation between yeah. it, yeah. So I would have recommended summer camp going to coach or teach or be a counsellor at a camp to anyone after that.
0: Was that your first real exposure to, maybe not mental health illness, but trauma and the reality of how mental health can affect people when it's not in a good place? Yeah,
1: absolutely, especially in children. You get split into groups and you get to look after a certain age group. So our age group were 12 and 13 And so a 12-year-old could still be quite young and want to play with dolls. But you've got the other 12-year-olds that are you know into boys and maturity uh, levels yeah. are different yeah so the maturity levels are different and how they handle things are different so you know keeping an eye out for bullying mm. eating disorders mm. all of these things and i'm only at that age, i was only 21 so i was like you know <laughs> you think you're really you're still
0: dealing with things yourself but yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: you think you're really grown up and mature and adult and they look to you like that as well mm. so it is a, a big awakening when you have these things like presented to you absolutely mm. it was challenging but really really rewarding and yeah
0: tell me how the journey continued after university now because Breaking into the UK media industry is incredibly hard. We both know I've got family members who are in the media industry. You decided to go down a route that couldn't have been more different to get in, basically, and you moved to New Zealand. So tell me about the process yeah. behind that decision, because that's <laughs> literally the other side of the world. I know,
1: right? So talking about I really wanted to get out of my small village, I just then went, right, where's the furthest point on earth? <laughs> right, New Zealand. Uh, so so it
0: actually got a globe out yeah. put it on the map. Yeah, let's go. Uh,
1: yeah, so I just love flying. Uh, yeah, so at the summer camp, I made some really good friends, some of whom were from New Zealand. And I hadn't really, other than, you know, the usual thing, so naive, hadn't really heard of New Zealand. Australia, you had home and away neighbours growing up on TV. New Zealand now, you just think Lord of the Rings? People <laughs> actually live there? Like, it's so disrespectful. But, you know, I didn't know too much about it. And then I got back from the summer camp. After the camp finished, we all did a bit of travelling around America together, which was amazing. And I just thought, I just love this. I don't want to go into a nine to five. but Yet, worked,
0: anyway, yeah. anyway, yeah. Yeah,
1: but I've worked at university and it's cost a lot of money and, you know, I've got to get a job at some point. But I thought, well, maybe if I just get the travelling bit out of the way now, then start the career. So that's what I decided to do. I got back home. I think I had like a six-month period where I was a sales rep for a, like a photocopying company. It was all like commission. So I was like, right, let's go. <laughs> you know, made loads of money in commission to pay for my visa, my flight. And I remember just, I was living at my parents. You had the
0: objective as well. Like, I want to make all this money now. That was the goal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And and looking back, maybe I should have gone into sales. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I remember going downstairs to my mum and dad and I said, I am going to go to New Zealand. And they were like, okay. And I said, I've saved up the money. I'm going to book the ticket now. I'm going to go for six months, but I'm going to get a working holiday visa, which means I might stay a year. And they were like, well, you know, you had such a good time in the summer camp, go for it. And this time it was a little bit better because I had friends there. So it's not like I'm just going and like there's no one there. That would have been a serious move. Isn't I know, it? Yeah. I know. And, and some people do it. And I just thought, if I don't like it, I can just come home. As it was an um, open ended ticket, I think, for the first like six months. Again, just this like streak of adventure in me. Like, would I do that now? I don't know. It's too many responsibilities too many ties but then you know I didn't have a proper career yet Mm. I was just had this like sales job I was living at home didn't have rent really or you know so yeah why not so off I went and New Zealand was as good as everybody says it is it's just such an amazing relaxed chilled up place and that was where I got my first media job so I applied for a job at uh, Sky New Zealand thinking well I've got a degree maybe they'll give me a shot and
0: uh did it say intensive knowledge of rugby union required (laughs) yeah
1: can you name all the all blacks yeah yeah Yeah, so I was just just naive to it really I just put my cv in or whatever and they got back to me and they said yeah we welcome people you know with degrees like come because I think a lot of people of my age group were who were from New Zealand were doing the same thing but over in Europe so it's a big gap for them. They like, always,
0: yeah, all the Kiwis always go like, yeah, backpacking so, around Europe because they are so, I guess, isolated in that country, then that's their opportunity to go see the world. Yeah, exactly. Sort of diverse, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So, yeah, they gave me my first job. And, I, you know, it was so easy that I was like, oh, you know, there was always things on the news like, oh, people with degrees, they can't get jobs. And I was like, I just got a job. <laughs> <laughs> but it was because it was in New Zealand. Yeah. So, yeah, so that worked as a bit of an apprenticeship, really, at Sky NZ. Um I worked there, but on my working holiday visa, I couldn't work longer than, I think, 12 months in a row. So my six months holiday to New Zealand, mum and dad, turned into, I'm going to stay the full year, turned into, I'm going to extend my visa, and I ended up staying two years.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. got some
1: traveling uh, around the North and South Island, worked. So it was a really good balance of having the experience on my CV, and I was traveling and seeing things. Did so. you ever see
0: a Rugby Union match live? Crusaders. I did. Well,
1: uh, cut a long story <laughs> short, I ended up... I have a really good friend, Ryan, and his uh, stepbrother is Sonny Bill Williams. Oh, my so God. ended up... Wow, that
0: couldn't be more of a stereotype. You actually go there and a family <laughs> relation is literally one of the most famous New Zealand <laughs> players of all time.
1: Yeah, so actually that came later, but that's another story. Do you, um,
0: you want to come on a pod? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, get him on. So you have those two years in New Zealand. You come back to London with all this experience... What made you decide to come home in the first place, except for the fact that it was running out, your visa, your working holiday visa? Was there another reason? Was it homesickness? Did you want to start the career here now? What was the thought process here?
1: I was thinking about this when we um, were talking about me coming onto this pod and, you know, you sort of sent me a few questions ahead. I really can't remember specifically what it was because I do remember Sky saying, if you wanted to stay we will start the sponsorship process, which is like the golden ticket for people that want mm. to live over there. And to be so like, no, I'm all right. I thought, oh, there must have been a specific reason. I must have felt really homesick. I must have really wanted to see my friends and family at home. But I think what it was, was it was like a natural close to that chapter. I thought, right, I've done my two years. In a way, I didn't realise how like goal orientated I was. Like, I'm going to go to Camp America. And then, right, I'm going to do some travelling. And then when I come back, I'm going to start my career. Mm. But I ended up staying longer out there because my career began there. But in my mind, I must have thought, I want that London. When mm. I get back to London, working in the media and in London. You saw the next London. challenge
0: in your head. Yeah, you saw. Yeah. Did you think, like, I can't get anything more out of this?
1: I probably could have pushed it a little bit more and maybe even gone back down to the radio route or something in New Zealand. But I just felt like even though I did establish a life there and I lived there essentially for two years rather than, I wasn't like a traveler. It wasn't like a I was living in a backpack. I had rent, I lived in a house. Mm. It was just the right time in my mind to go. And I just sort of went with my gut feeling. My gut feeling was come back. So I came back and yeah, I was like, right, I'm going to have to get a, what I thought was a proper job. You know, in inverted
0: commas you're doing there. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, in yeah. New
1: Zealand, it, it was a proper job, but I don't know, because I was abroad and I was still, you know, I absolutely loved my life. You know, I guess that image of once you get a job, you get become miserable or something. Mm. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah. So I managed to get a contact of mine when I worked at Sky and Zed worked at Sky in London, and was like, oh, I I'd email. I just sent an email and I was like, can I come and see Sky? You know, would you show me around? Let's have a coffee. So I, like, really hustled my way in just to be like face I've to face. Got a
0: lot of fearlessness there, pal. Was that is that innate in you, or did you was slinging sling your arm just something that you just gave a shot at
1: oh absolute hustler like i don't know <laughs> like i really feel that that person in her 20s was like that like fearless like if you mm. don't ask you know, don't get you don't get yeah. and you know i had that strength in me from going to america completely alone moving my whole life to the other side of the world right and back now you know, if I've done that, I can ask someone if I can have a coffee with them. If they say so that's no, that's how they your say mindset no. was. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is this is easy. This is yeah, simple. What's yeah. the going to happen? And why not? Yeah. And everything was so easy in New Zealand. I figured, surely, you know. And I think maybe it was the sort of mentality I'd adopted as well, living in New Zealand. That like the Kiwis are so laid back about stuff and so welcoming. They're such a lovely people that I just thought, oh, no one's going to say no to this young girl wanting to just come and see mm. the see the buildings and mm. say no. Whereas now, I'm thinking, if someone asked me, would I do the same? Would I give up my time? Some random... I mean, maybe if I had the... If they email, like, info at wherever I work, maybe I'm like, oh, time waster. If they directly inbox me, probably would. But, yeah, so I I had this contact. I went down. I met her. And she was like, oh, do you want to see the studios? Do you want to see this? It was amazing. It was completely different to... New Zealand like yeah. the, it was massive i was like wow i'm a fish out of water here like oh maybe maybe <laughs> i was a bit confident in maybe getting a job here i don't know and then cut a long story short i met a few people got some contacts emailed them for jobs and had an interview and got a job out of that mm. but yeah i don't know even now i mean that was 2010 so I don't know now if that would even happen you know but these are the sort of stories you've got to get your foot in the door somehow and that's how I did it
0: you started off as a post-production coordinator so for those who don't know what that role entails you told me that it's kind of like starting right at the bottom oh yeah it was was, tell the listeners about the challenges of that role because I understand a lot of it came from this feeling of precariousness can you unpack that for me yeah
1: so yeah great I got this job and oh wow like you know I've got my foot in the door sounds so optimistic right (laughs) (laughs) the reality of it is you are the bottom of the food chain so I started at the same time as about three yeah there were four of us in total that were these sort of juniors so to speak the coordinators were sort of assistants to the sort of Team that managed all the the editing suites, and right. there were a lot at Sky. So you were working out schedules, you were booking out rooms and times, and voiceovers, and running around making cups of tea. You know,
0: it doesn't sound like a job at the bottom, by the way. It sounds quite a, quite a sophisticated well, job. Yeah. I mean, but if you work in TV, maybe you know. But to a layman, <laughs> it probably doesn't. Yeah,
1: yeah. For me, it was. A step up from, I guess a runner would be an entry-level job. It was a slight step up from that in the sense that you had quite a lot of responsibility. You were the first ones in at the beginning of the day. You were the last ones to leave. And if things weren't done or... You know, you sort of got all the the crap end of it. The so dog
0: work, the dog yeah. work,
1: yeah. And then if people went sick, well, you've got to find someone. And if you don't find someone, you know, this whole show isn't going to air. And why have I got that responsibility? Aren't people getting paid to like have yeah. that? Like, and also that fear of well, you are at the moment you're only on this first step, so we can replace you. So you better do it, and you better stay these long hours. And the amounts of times like me and the other three would be eating pizza at eleven o'clock at night, and I'm thinking. I'm on, like, you Is know. Is it worth
0: it sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. like, what,
1: how am I, I don't even feel like I'm learning anything here. Mm. I'm just getting all of the crap thrown at me and do this and do that. And, you know, there's no time in the day to even sit and train for the next step on the ladder. However, eventually it did come, but I had to do a lot of long days, long burning the candle at both ends as well. I'm working in London for my, with my first sort of professional job in London with a salary. And I'm going out a lot as well, you know. Because it's it's you want to have a,
0: some sort of life because the work-life balance was so bad, I imagine.
1: It was. And my life was work because I was oh. going to all the free stuff, like yeah. free parties. Free. I mean,
0: okay, I guess that's one positive. But yeah, so. I know.
1: Oh, <laughs> I'm a boo-hoo. Oh, you had to work long hours, but you get to go to like free events. Uh, making it sound uh, like it was awful. But at times it actually was because even my parents were like, are like, I think there's an advert on TV at the moment about a girl who's sort of from up north and she's got this job in London and mum and dad send her a care package. Are you eating okay? That was my mum and dad when they visit me. They'd like bring me shopping and stuff. I was like, I feel like a student again yeah. because literally. You don't
0: have, a lot, you don't have any time. Do don't you?
1: have any time. And like my goal was I need to get out of this job and if I get the next job up, I will get my life back mm. sort of thing. Did you feel burnt out? Completely. Oh yeah, completely. Like I would never cry at work. I'm actually quite like, I definitely would go home and like, be like, what is this for? Mm. I'm exhausted. People talk to you like shit. Also, you know, just looking above in the company, everyone in a sort of senior position was male so i was like what am i working towards here can Can i even get can i even get there like is this for nothing like and just because i'm the person that's printing off stuff for you or getting you cups of tea or whatever don't talk to me like crap Mm. like i'm still human i've got a degree you know like there's things i can probably do in i don't know excel or whatever or on the system that you wouldn't be able to i don't know it was just like there was a big is there a
0: fakeness there? People sort of being nice to other people above them or the same level oh, but people below yeah. them being horrific? I mean, that's a problem in society, I guess, but particularly in what you are you were doing, the media, is that a
1: problem? Yeah, yeah, sorry, mate, to cut you off. The, the media industry in general is like dog eat dog. People will do whatever it takes to get to the top, especially in a big corporate place. It's how you're seen, it's how you play the game, really. And if you're not willing to do that, then, you know, you don't really have a hope. And it was something that I really was not willing to do. I just thought I thought we were friends, you know. People that you think are your friends are really just trying to like. I've learned climb that over. as well. Yeah, yeah, like climb over you to get to the top. I even had a manager of mine, and she was a really good mentor for me at that stage, in some ways and in other ways. I just thought, why should we be like this? So not even as a female, but she was like, you know, just you just got to re- really remember it's a really corporate environment. Tone down your personality, play the game. We have heard get that before. F- yeah. <laughs> and and you'll, get, you'll get where you want because she was like, you've got a really good head on your shoulders. You really know your stuff. And, you know, part of me was like, oh, thanks. Yeah, I can see it. She was like, I see myself in you. And, like, I had to really, really change. And I really appreciated her taking that time out. And because I did play ball in that way, I guess that's why I then got promoted. But then looking back, I'm like, why do I have to alter who I am to fit? You could that be corporate- your whole self
0: at work. And, lo- and loads of companies, and not just in media, I imagine will say please bring your whole self to work but does that actually happen or want do they want it to happen in practice i'm more skeptical
1: yeah exactly so especially nowadays i guess companies have to be more aware of how they
0: more aware yeah exactly the
1: woke. they're woke right yeah. so let's just make sure everyone's happy and everyone's good yeah so mm. i had to go
0: after four years at sky you then put another dot on your globe <laughs> just slightly next to him he started to go to australia instead so you said you ran away because of a traumatic event which which we'll discuss later in the pod sarah but just tell me about your experiences in australia first of all and what your mental health state was at this point
1: yeah so for me australia was a natural next step if I was going to go and live anywhere I knew the process of applying for the working holiday visa for New Zealand and for Australia it was pretty much the same so when I was in this turbulent point in my life I thought where can I go where can I run away to essentially I know some people in Australia I'm going there so that's where I went for me it doesn't bring back fond memories at all like I think about Australia and Even people say to me, oh, what's it like to live in Australia?
0: Less chill than New Zealand. Oh,
1: yeah, less chill. (laughs) I wasn't in the right headspace to even enjoy it. I just, the connotations I have of Australia are just nothing almost. Mm. It's just sort of like, I didn't like it. That's what I say to people. Now, is that Australia I didn't like or was I just in a really crap place? A mixture, I think. I think I was always going to compare it to New Zealand. For some strange reason. And the experience I have th- had Probably there. Probably because of the accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the good weather. Yeah. And I just was not feeling good about myself, my situation. And was just sort of, I was there. I stayed the 12 months. I had a 12-month visa. I stayed the 12 months just to prove a point almost. To and yourself? To myself, like, I'm going to, you know, this is going to inject like that old me back, you know, the one that we spoke about before that would just go travelling, go and meet people for coffees and get jobs. I thought, I need that person back because that person by this point wasn't there anymore. Mm. So if I go to Australia, I can reignite that and I can get that person back again. I can go back to England, a person I recognise didn't happen. And yeah, my memories of Australia, unfortunately, are not nice. Would you go back? I don't know. I almost have a bit of a fear because it probably put, I'm worried that it will put me back in that mindset. Mm. It,
0: like a country's a trigger.
1: It would, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what,
0: that's the first time I've ever heard that on this <laughs> podcast, but I saw it's time yeah. for something new. <laughs>
1: Kylie Minogue comes on the radio. I'm like, oh no. Jason Donovan, avoid all <laughs> show plays. <laughs> I would anyway, mate. Yeah, it is sort of, I don't know. I, it would be nice to go back and just have a nice experience there. Mm. You know, be happy, go with people that I feel safe with and visit. Like one of my best friends, he lives there still. So he's like, hey, are you going to come and visit? But then I'm always like, oh, why don't we meet like in Thailand or something? <laughs> like...
0: <still> halfway. <laughs> you came back to the UK and you got a job at Discovery Channel before moving to Timeline Television, which you are at now. Mm. So what prompted you to want to work for Timeline given it's a much smaller indie company for the listeners who don't know what the industry's like? And how does it compare to the other, shall we say, corporate titans you've worked at in the past
1: so timeline came about i'll briefly just touch on so i got back from australia and obviously needed a job and i got this job at discovery and another thing with media companies are they can
0: be really clicky and if
1: you're not in the clique
0: i also know about that then (laughs) not naming any names
1: (laughs) (laughs) right so you know what i mean it's and if you're not in it then you just feel like Uh, Doors are
0: shut as well. [SSS1] Doors are shut. You want to go through them and you're like, oh, why can't I do this? Because I don't know X person, right? Yeah. Yeah. So
1: there was a lot of that for me. I wouldn't say that was the culture of the company of Discovery at all. Just so happened, I was just in this team that felt a bit like that, which I know since a few people have left and it's probably okay now. Mm. But yeah, for me, I was only on a contract there anyway. And I thought, right, my next job, I could go and apply for something at Sky again, because I left on good terms. And that was my experience. And I had contacts there. That would have been the easy route. But I just thought, I can't go back there again. It's a trigger of I left there when something happened. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just leave that be. And I was living in Ealing at the time. And I thought, well, I've got Ealing Studios on my doorstep. There must be something there. And I just like Googled it, I think. And Timeline Television came up and it was an outside broadcast company that had post-production facilities and I thought okay I've never really worked with outside broadcast before but I've done a lot of like scheduling and um, sort of like production management type things maybe I'll give it a go went for the interview Got the job. It's Happy a trek days. from here, mate. Yeah, it is now. Yeah. <laughs> now I've moved way east. So yeah, I, yeah. I just love the Central Line.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a badge of honour and shame at equal points <laughs> living on the Central Line.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, love the Central Line. Said nobody ever. But I was living in Ealing, so my commute then was literally a five-minute walk. It was oh, Sensational, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, Timeline appealed to me because, as you said, it was a smaller company. I think it was about, at the time, there was 50 people that worked for oh, the company. Oh, wow, okay, so very small. The CEO, who's... He's not like your typical sitting in an office on his own in his ivory tower CEO. He's desperate. or sitting next to you and he never talks yeah. to you. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's getting amongst it. He's you know, there's things to be rigged. He's rolling up his sleeve. He's helping. Oh, so amazing. that sort yeah. of feel of it is everybody mucks in. Sets the example. It yeah, really, yeah. Did, it really did. And like even like management, it didn't feel segregated. Everybody's treated with respect. The social aspect of it, everybody was included. And yeah, I've been there six years now, so obviously. Uh, resonated and i really i really do enjoy working there
0: from a career perspective has it given you a new lease of life that might be too strong a term but has it
1: well for years i was i was there i was in the same role and then uh, this is what i love about it as well i remember going to my boss saying i need a new challenge and he was like well what do you want to do and i was like whoa uh (laughs) i I wasn't prepared for uh, this yeah (laughs) I, i don't know i don't i don't know and he was like well what are we doing? It was like, tell me what you want to do and then let's work out. So, yeah, so now I'm in like a business development role. And basically our company has grown in the, in the time I've been there. I think I mentioned it was like 50 staff. Now we're over 200 staff.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. We have a
1: lot of clients, bigger resources. You know, there's a lot going on. The company's done really well in spite of the pandemic and everything like that. So this role was needed. I spotted the gap and now they're paying for me to do a business diploma because I had no formal business training. I know my company inside out because I've worked there so long. I know the industry well, but just to get that sort of, commercial business analyst development part of it i'm going through a diploma so yeah my company are supporting that i just feel really supported really valued and safe there you know Mm. i don't feel like someone's going to come along and take my job or Mm. i can be you know i'm not i don't feel disposable there and there's no sort of like mental mind games it's Mm. you know it's very clear yeah definitely feel like this new role has given me a a bit of a spring in my step because i'm learning something new And, you know, you can easily get stuck on the treadmill of just doing the same thing because it's Mm. easy and you get your paycheck and you go home. But it's also really good to challenge yourself.
0: You doing any sales?
1: (laughs) Yeah, really enjoying everything.
0: Let's reflect now. What has it taught you about yourself going on this journey as long as you have?
1: It is, it has, I should say, taught me to be patient I'm not a very patient person. Same. I think you said that before. Yeah, not zero I'm not patience. at all. I'm very, like, let's get it done. Well, not like...
0: point one patience, let me put it that way. I'd yeah. like to learn a little bit along the way, but still not a lot, especially with tech. I'm like, just work. <laughs> I don't want to wait for updates to install.
1: Not even that. People, right? Where are yeah. they? Text me back. New Zealand, it's so funny. Like, you could send an email, and you know how, like, the culture here is like, if you don't get the email back, like, that same day, like, hello? All right, maybe they're off today, like tomorrow, right? They'll be remi- New Zealand, like, they'll wait a week. No, that's all right. I only got that on Tuesday. It's like Friday. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, just because so different, which I think...
0: That would drive me insane, by the way.
1: Yeah, well, it was all I knew because that was yeah. my first job, right? But what happened was when I moved to London and got the job at Sky... I was being like that, and they were like, you need to be a bit more, like, uh, you know, quick. <laughs> like quick on the ball, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah. so I, used to that previous like, mindset, yeah. getting used to it. Yeah. And I was like, chill out, guys, like, yeah. it's fine. They were like, no, no, we need a reply now. I was like, yeah. oh, sh- okay. So they saw that as a bad habit that I'd adopted from New Zealand. And mm. I was like, oh, okay, maybe we all need to be a bit more like that, too. Is this
0: where, like, the whole, and I hear this a lot in podcasts especially when people talk about team cultures and team environments the whole fifo do you know the fifo principle fit in or fuck off sort of thing yeah i sort of see quite a flaw in that when you talk about things like that because if you don't fit in and it's a bad culture then you're fucking off but you're losing that person who is potentially good do you know what I mean
1: yeah and also there's that thing of it's good to have people that are different exactly if, everybody, yeah. if everybody's the same
0: in New Zealand it's tall poppy syndrome especially like the all blacks like no mate you can't be <laughs> can't <laughs> be doing a lot of things like this mate like, you <laughs> need to be stay humble bro
1: this accent wow. <laughs> <laughs> needs a bit of work but
0: I like <laughs> the uh, my Aussie in New Zealand is based on Flight of the Concorde. So. <laughs> right yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's the only thing like, I can say <laughs> this I go oh yeah mate like yeah it's, it's, that sounds good mate and yeah. just say this a lot <laughs> this and yes yeah this and yes yeah
1: sorry what was your question um
0: the uh, the flaws of fifo and how these team cultures and environments work yeah i work.
1: mean well the, the biggest flaw is if you want everybody to be the same then how are you expecting to get any different outcomes and or then thoughts or thoughts or <laughs> to stop you doing something that's maybe not the best thing to do or and then the fuck off bit it's you're going to potentially like you say you lose someone that's an asset and well your loss is somebody else's gain somewhere if you're going to if you're going to have that attitude but I feel like sometimes it's best for you to think, hmm, do I fit in? Not really. Do I want to? Not really. Mm. So bye, I'm going to fuck off out of my own terms. So yeah, I would strongly advise anyone that wanted to, or doesn't feel like they fit in. Obviously, not everyone's in that privileged position to just find another job, but always be looking, you know, just because you're in a, you know, don't start looking for a job just because either you've been made redundant or you have to. If they're not going to offer you something or progress your career, there might be someone out there that will. So just always, you know, keep your LinkedIn profile up to date.
0: Um, or just use Twitter. Like use I do. Twitter. <laughs> contact Twitter is my LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. We've talked about media. I want to go a bit deeper now. Talk yeah. about your own journey, Sarah. So I ask all my special guests this question first. You've heard it on Mark's one. Yeah. Tell me about early life, Hertfordshire, teenage years, family. And whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Sarah we meet here?
1: So I was actually born in Whipscross Hospital, Whee! Leightonstone. Big ups. Big shout out. And we lived in Leightonstone as a family. And my mum and dad have told the tale of they wanted us to have a bit more of an outdoor upbringing, which we wouldn't have been able to have on the streets of East London. So uh, my mum, being a nurse at Whipscross, had a couple of colleagues that lived out in Hertfordshire and would like commute in. And she thought, oh, OK, let's go and have a look. And uh, we ended up in a village called Sawbridgeworth, which is basically on the border of Harts and Essex so that is where my family home is still to this day and it was an amazing childhood and it was the outdoor childhood that you hear about from years gone by playing out in the street ice cream man coming around crying when you have to go in for dinner because you still Get want that to he wanted.
0: <laughs> you lost that on so many years of Percy Ingle then you moved him, but bloody Percy Ingle shut You're good <laughs> oh, oh. No.
1: so yeah the childhood was great lots of friends very sociable kid have a brother we actually remarkably close, considering, you know, like brothers and sisters, you think you'd grow up. There's only quiet. two of you? Just us two, the, yeah. That's
0: why, though, when you get older, you normally become quite close. Yeah, the yeah. There's only one of you.
1: And as kids, you know, if we had each other to play with, then he was always like, he's very, very sporty. And I was all like, let's play like imaginary games. And he was like, I can't see this bridge that you're talking about,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. Like, it's like Bridge to Terabithia. Yeah, what are you on about? <laughs> well, that's a sad film, let's not go there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, very happy childhood. Good school life, enjoyed school. I was really lucky to even enjoy secondary school. I know a lot of people don't, especially because I I went to an all-girls high school mm-hmm. and they're notoriously known for a lot of bitchiness, a lot of bullying. And my way to sort of like combat that Was like humor, like just be a clown, Mm -hmm. and then people, you know, they instead of wanting to disarm it, yeah, Yeah. people instead of wanting to beat you up or pick on you, they'll just laugh at you or make you do things on their behalf, and then
0: survival tactic, really. Oh, completely, yeah.
1: yeah. And looking back at it, I just thought, oh, it's it's funny and I enjoy it. But that again was the sort of like show off in me, you know, the little kid walking around with a rolling pin interviewing people, and then in school, if I can make people laugh. It's like, I loved it, you know. Mm. And I sort of just about got away with it. Like, teachers didn't really consider me a naughty kid. So you weren't a troublemaker, just I wasn't really, yeah. I was easily sort of distracted and things like that. But I, all my work was fine. So I got my work done and things like that. It was just the impact it would have on other people. So the occasional, can you leave the classrooms and these sort of things. If
0: you're a boy, it might be a different story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, I mean, that's the thing, right? So the dynamics in an all-girls school are the fact that people take on... You know, there's no boys, so people take on the the class clown, jokers. There's like alpha females as well that are like really shit, of scary. course, really scary. Like, <laughs> and you know, like I say, do anything you can to not get in their bad books. But yeah, I enjoyed school. I have fun memories of high school, and some of my best friends are still from mm. high school.
0: So people find a supercharged way to insert some testosterone somewhere yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah
1: <laughs> and I'm, i've seen some fights that
0: <laughs> really <laughs> oh yeah oh, Okay. Like,
1: because you know with girls there's the hair there's nails right there's, <laughs> like...
0: the thing is actually with girls it's no holds barred yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no rules at least yeah. with boys it's just straight punches you're going everywhere
1: <laughs> yeah well luckily not me like not I, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was um yeah dodging ducking and diving and like trying to sell tickets so yeah so, so high school was great and childhood was great early mental health you know there is the the thing of being in a girls' school, and you know the comparison to other people. Like, you know they're thinner than me. They have you know like it's hard g-
0: growing up being a girl. I oh think yeah, really like really they're realize. you know
1: they're they're probably prettier than me. They've got bigger boobs than me, or, or why do I have curves and they're like slim? Or you know like you was know the Kate Moss
0: era. You were sort of going oh we were, I was
1: in the era of all the lo- sort of lollipop head celebrities. So you got posh Spice, you got the girls from Friends it's skinny was and Kate Mm, Moss and you know skinny jeans I've never owned a pair of skinny jeans in my life and as a teenager you think I can't you know like I can't relate to anyone I'm looking Mm. at in magazines or my favorite tv shows or my favorite pop bands there was no one when I was slightly younger so 1996 sort of era when I was at primary school the Spice Girls were great role models because at that point they hadn't hit there, we all need to lose loads of weight and be really skinny. They were just themselves, like regular. The,
0: the original of. girl power sort exactly. of thing. Right? Exactly,
1: yeah. yeah. But then in high school, my role models were people that were nothing really like me. There wasn't anyone, you know, and I'm, I don't know anyone who would have, like, I'm like mixed race. So, like, my dad is from Mauritius and my mum is English. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, Soof. Right. right and so i but again people wouldn't know that looking at you no
1: know, because i you know i look white yeah right so it's that thing of where do i fit in so you know a lot of sort of like the girls at school who are only of like white background and then you know the girls from asian backgrounds and you know even within my own family so i'm uh, so
0: i have a friend of a close friend i've interviewed before and he's mauritian he's a lot darker than you so he appears south asian or indian but mauritius is a country that he told me It's not African, it's not India, it's not really classed as sort of any place on the continent.
1: That's it, because people say, oh, so what are Mauritian people like? And it's like, well, it's an island, so it's an amalgamation of Africa, India, China.
0: Asia, somewhere, places, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. and so there's that thing of, you're a teenager already, where do I fit in? I don't look like people who I'm looking at in magazines or watching on TV or in the pop bands, but then within my own family... You know, I'm going to family weddings and I'm either like, and it's a Mauritian wedding, for example, and we're the only white kids there. Yeah. When we obviously, we're not, you know, we are half and half. And then, you know, being maybe not white enough for like some of my family on my mum's side, but not Mauritian enough on my dad's side. So, you know, you get that mixed, thing mixed of, I really, people, am pr- yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'm proud of both cultures and both parts of my heritage, but never really felt one or the other. Don't feel. Do
0: you feel not- that now?
1: Still a little bit, yeah, if I'm honest. But I think as well, my mum and dad said they gave my brother and I, obviously we have a like foreign surname, but we have sort of predominantly like English names. So his mm. name is Adam, I'm Sarah. We could have been given Mauritian first names. All of these things. And my dad as well, like being, you know, we don't really talk about it too much, but in one conversation I had with him, he was grateful that we came out more white. Then we did Mauritian. He was like, or yeah. more
0: like traditional English sort of thing, inverted commas. Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. Because our opportunities are better for oh, us.
0: All right. right. So not in the sense of his own, I don't know, internalised feelings about one thing or another, but because he wanted you to sort of succeed in life yeah. and he knew the harsh realities of yeah. race in yeah. the world.
1: Yeah. Which he's only said fairly recently. And I was like, wow, that is, you know, that's quite a lot to sort of unpack. And, and I just said to him, like, well, we do feel like we are... You know, because for him as well, he's grown up in Mauritius, moved here when he was younger. And he's married a white lady, but both of his kids are like blonde haired, mm. you know. And, you know, you get horrible things like people saying, oh, that's not your real dad and all this stuff. Mm. And, you know, it's like genetics work in very strange ways. So that was the sort of thing I was battling a little bit growing up in terms of my mental health. Like, where do I fit in? I'm really proud to be mixed race, but people aren't really allowing me to be both because they don't
0: believe you almost yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah. crazy and really strange as well i think i was quite lucky like at primary school i had no issues but in our village everybody was white in there was one black family and there was like maybe two indian families and then us obviously the black family and the indian families i don't know what kind of racism they experienced but being mixed was something i know my brother had issues with people not realizing and then getting picked up if they've had like tea round our house after school, and then my dad answered the door, and then they're never allowed round again. You know things like that, like crazy, very yeah. Weird. Like we've deceived them. Well, you look white, you know. Like it's just yeah. But I was really fortunate that I didn't have any of that thrown in my face. However, I was talking about mental health growing up. That was probably something. That I was very conscious of, and do I act a certain way? You know, people saying things around me, especially after nine eleven. Oh, of
0: course, yeah, because they they don't realize, and they don't realize, yeah. right? So,
1: my dad's family is Islamic, they're Muslim, and all the sort of Islamophobia, and mm. I'm sitting right there. You know, like
0: you're almost seeing people's true colors in stealth.
1: Yeah, and they think, oh, well, there's no, no, no one well, around. No, no one's around. <laughs> it's like, uh, hello. <laughs> yeah right, so okay. things like that would come to light and you know then people just sort of like making ingest jokes which again nowadays i do think younger people are a little bit more aware of you know what they say and things but yeah back then you know it's only a joke you know mm. it's not well, funny. if you're not in on it then yeah
0: it's not it's not is it if you're yeah. in on it and you're doing it then okay whatever in that social context in that social group then people can do what they want because if no one's getting hurt by it but if you're not in on the joke then yeah what we're we doing here also funny story i had to chuck away all my skinny jeans as well when i started going to the gym because i wore a pair on the train once and someone gave up their seat for me because oh. they thought i was walking with some sort of like i was walking a bit a bit restricted oh
2: my
0: so they asked Still the them gains? yeah they must have well my, my legs aren't even that big but compared to what the skinny jeans were <laughs> yeah yeah not oh, that's right hilarious. The main trauma that you wanted to discuss within your mental health journey, Sarah, is your experience of domestic abuse. Mm. So I want to set the scene for the listeners first. How did you meet your ex-partner? And when did you start to notice those red flags? And when did the abuse start happening?
1: Yeah. So earlier on, I was talking about I got my job at Sky and it was like entry level and it was a lot of long hours and quite stressful and all these sort of things. So even though I was living a London life, I wasn't really going out meeting people until one day my flatmate, who was a chef, had all his like brigade, all his chefs round for a barbecue. And I got home and they were like, oh, come and join us. And my ex-partner was one of the people at the barbecue, worked with my flatmate. They were friendly. Yeah, we got talking and not soon after went on our first date. And yeah, that's that's how we met in a very sort of safe environment really you know not out in a bar not a random it was like a friend of a friend or a colleague of a friend normal way didn't yeah. see
0: anything wrong with it yeah, not even no like an online tinder yeah. thing
1: nothing like that you know just uh in my living room in my home first interaction mm.
0: so you moved in with him after just six months which is i guess even in today's standards quite yeah sure so looking back do you regret that or was there no reason to suggest it would turn out the way it did
1: well i guess because he knew my flatmate and he was dating me he was round at our house a lot and it became that thing of we're both paying rent in london it's extortionate mm. you're here most of the time anyway you already it know my sense. yeah you yeah. know my flatmate it makes sense so yes in hindsight it was very quick to be living with somebody but it felt like we were living together anyway yeah Yeah. so yeah it didn't really feel that bad
0: it was after he moved in where you saw his true personality the one that people don't see behind closed Mm. doors can you tell me about when you saw that change and how that began to affect your mental health
1: it's a strange one because it isn't like a switch and you're like wow he's turned into a monster Is really slowly drip fed to the point where it's only when you look back, you're like, oh, that's when, okay, and he was doing that. Just started off with small things like, if he was working, he would prefer it if I wasn't going out. Or if I was working late, texting me, where are you? You can't be working. I don't believe you. You know, like.
0: The paranoia started.
1: The paranoia started and very sort of like verbally or like text message abuse you know like this mm. big like paragraphs of like going nuts and i was literally stressed out at so that work made
0: you question yourself as if you were doing something really wrong Then yeah I and i
1: thought well you know i i'm only at work and then that means like maybe when i'm not at work and he is i should be waiting for him at home that's the other thing he was a chef right so he would get home probably just gone midnight and would expect me to be awake when he got in now i'm getting up at like seven in the morning the next day and so things like coming in, waking me up, like why are you not waiting for me? You know, all these sort of it's like not, not very, yeah, and not very like loving. But I started then questioning, oh gosh, maybe I should. Like I don't really see him much, and I should make more effort to do these sort of things. And you know, so that sort of stuff. And then just things like when I was getting ready, like why would you want to wear that to work? Why are you wearing that? Why are you putting lipstick on? Oh well, I've got like quite a big meeting today, or well, I I don't I shouldn't even have to justify. Mm. You know, like now I want to shake that. 24 year old and go tell him to fuck off yeah, like yeah. but and it's such a cliche but it's a cliche for a reason you want to please I your partner you want to yeah, yeah i didn't yeah. see any of it happening and it was so like slowly but it was like he literally read the manual of an abuser like this is how it starts right so it's just all of the sort of physical like of comments on your physical appearance or what you should wear and then the coercive behavior of don't wear that Breaking don't go you down there slowly. why are you going out with those yeah. people i don't like that friend or then going out with me and some certain friends and telling me telling them that he doesn't like them and that you take up all sarah's time mm. when that's not the case we're all out together like just bizarre bizarre mm. behavior that slowly built and built
0: without giving his identity away he had served in the military mm. and in multiple foreign conflicts, it was likely he may have had some issues, or may, maybe more than likely, actually, probably some undiagnosed PTSD. Yeah. Do you think if he had a level of self-awareness about him, do you think if he had gotten help for it, it wouldn't have translated into these, what is known in psychology circles as the dark triad qualities that he possessed and exhibited towards you? Do you think he would have done it without these traumas? How do you look back on it at all? Why do you think he did it?
1: I I mean, I don't think he realised how much what he'd been through had affected him. He never wanted to talk about it.
2: Another he another yeah, yeah, he
1: would, you know, it's that classic thing that you see in movies of veterans when they're like dreaming and mm. having PTSD nightmares. And he would have that and i you know, I'd tell him, but it was kind of like shut down don't want to talk about it i'm fine what are you going on about you know Mm. like putting the blame denial as well yeah yeah Yeah. so i just sort of left alone and i didn't want to trigger him into Mm. like a rage so we'll just leave it and yeah it was just something that i feel like if he had had help with it could have helped but he was wanting me to be that person right you need to help me like wanted
0: you to be his therapist
1: yeah and this was something i had no No. idea about you know so it was very difficult
0: he also had problems with alcoholism which made him a lot more irritable and i guess a lot more volatile unpredictable how did that affect you did it make you have to walk on eggshells
1: oh absolutely so he didn't really drink a lot in the, he's not he wasn't like he had issues with alcoholism in the sense that he should have probably never had a drink he didn't drink a lot but when he did it didn't just the switch yeah Death it was absolutely yeah. yeah like matchstick you know go up completely from zero to 100 to the point where he was just a different
2: Mm. person
1: to a lot of people so when people saw him like that they were like wow he's gone he's that's not him who is he
0: without diluting the phrase it's almost bipolar it is literally Mm. one mood to another yes extreme extreme
1: and for me I was sitting there silently thinking, well, this isn't that far removed from what he's like behind closed doors. This is just an elevated version, right? Because what he was like was behind closed doors, he was this abuser... And then in front of people, Mr. Nice Guy. But mm. when he'd had a drink, he couldn't do Mr. Nice Guy because the drink the didn't mask agree with slipped. It. Yeah, yeah, mask slipped, and so people like oh, God, like you know, he's really bad with alcohol, and he's really not acting himself. And I'm thinking this is showing his true self actually. And yeah, it was eggshells. It was frightening. It was like I didn't want to be around him. Didn't want to be alone with him. Were people yeah.
0: afraid to say something?
1: I feel like people just thought he's just pissed. You know, oh God, he's acting like an idiot, and he'll feel really bad about this tomorrow. Whereas he made me feel really bad bad about it the next Mm. day. So people would sort of make comment, but not get too involved in the early stages anyway. It progressively got worse, which then led to luckily the the breakup. But Mm. at the beginning he'd drink and they would just say like, he shouldn't be drinking. He can't handle it. Again, trying to make light of it. Oh, he can't handle his boo. Look at him. He's turning into like a bit of a, and then when he would get worse and start smashing things or shouting at people who wouldn't, you know, even like physical with other people, not me. That's when people are like, oh, you're such a dick. Like people would then the next day have words with him and he'd just be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to really like sort that out. I shouldn't really drink. And, you know, I just don't know why I get like that. Mm. When really then I would be the one that would cop it. Like, mm. why didn't you say something? Why they were picking on me? Like you know, like real victim blaming going on. So
0: they were blaming you for his behavior. No, he would blame me for his behavior.
1: Right. Like if they brought it up with him.
0: Oh, okay. So if someone worse, yeah. So
1: (laughs) if someone would say to him last night, you You can't speak to, you can't speak to us like that. Like that about them, you know, like you were having a go at everyone. You were doing this, you know, Then, you know, behind closed doors, he'd be like, why are they saying that about me? Why didn't you stick up for me? And I'm like, well, Mm. I'm glad they're saying something because I'm, Mm. you know, but also petrified to upset him.
0: Was it the persistency or consistency of the verbal abuse, which was the worst, rather than just a one-off comment or a one-off incident in public? When it comes to verbal abuse, particularly, by the way.
1: So for the verbal abuse, it was just so constant that, I didn't notice when it was happening, when it wasn't, you yeah, know, normalised. like just, yeah. yeah, just sort of, yeah, normalised it, tried to tune it out, couldn't, became like a shell of myself, lost any sort of zest for life, my energy of, and positivity, like I'm quite a, well, especially then, you know, you got to think about it. This is off the back of uni, Camp America, New Zealand, came back to London, got this job, and then met him all of a sudden i've become
0: the momentum stalled it was like you had all this momentum going and then this was the roadblock the the, the fissure in the road essentially yeah
1: and everything apparently that he liked about me was everything that he now hated about me didn't want me to be successful didn't want me to be this like social butterfly one thing that he couldn't really control for me I know that a lot of coercive relationships it's cutting you off from like friends Mm. and family because we lived in the shared household that was my lifeline Uh, if we had lived alone you know I dread to think but we lived with other people to the point where he had to have a mask on unless we were in our bedroom and we you know so that was the other thing then I started trying to be downstairs more and, and things like that But it was a whole balancing act and it was always like I had to think. It was like chess, like, but if I stay downstairs longer, because I have to go, otherwise everyone's going to think what's going on. And also then he's going to have more of a go at me. I know what you're trying to do. Like, why don't you want to be, you know? So it was just this whole, it was so stressful.
0: That's like like just day to day life, just being constant pressure.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the anxiety around it was just Mm. like... Why do I have to even think about these things? But it's like I either just spend more time with him anyway. And then, unfortunately, that's when like more sexual abuse happened. Mm.
0: Before we talk about that, he was also physically violent towards you when mm. he was drunk. Mm. Did he remember that after it happened? Was it in public? Was it just in the bedroom? What was the situation around that? Because surely people saw it, they'd have been like...
1: Yeah, so the, the straw that broke the camel's back is where people were aware of it and that's when um, and I'll tell that story in a bit but a lot of it was happening in the bedroom yeah just like manhandling like wrists pushing up against walls but you know like hitting shoving and sort of like up in my face and the main event so to speak was strangulation hands around the neck he would do it and then the next day it depends like sometimes he would be like what you on about I, I don't know. He's like complete, like gaslighting me into thinking it didn't happen. But other times it would be a complete breakdown of I don't know why I do. It. I, you you can't leave me. You need to help me. Like, That's
0: also the sign of an abuser.
1: Mm-hmm. Like w- why are you leaving me when I really need you? Using or, his like,
0: mental health as a shield.
1: Yeah. yeah, and basically, yeah, this this whole like victim blaming of if you leave me, how am I ever supposed to get better? And it's like, well, why are you? Why is that my fault? Mm. You know. But at the time, I was like, oh yeah, you're right because I. Believed I was like completely in love with this person and he needed me. And yeah, it was that whole self-doubt of, well, I can't go because what's going to happen to him? And what happens if he does something to himself? And, you I've know, just this so many times, constant you know. fear of, I don't want people to, people will think so badly of me if they find out I've abandoned him when really I'm getting it at all angles, you know? So mm. yeah, it was a mixture of him blaming me and feeling remorseful at the same time. And sometimes what you want about, oh, or playing it down, you know, like, don't be so dramatic. And, you know, you, you, you're crazy. Like, you know, oh, it was only a little tap or like, you know, all these sort of things. And I just, again, felt like I was a walking cliche. Looking at, if you watch like a TV drama or you hear a story of someone and you're like, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you just leave? And that That's so also
0: harmful, that y- whole cliche
1: yeah and it's so disrespectful and arrogant now looking back at it like why would i think that i could get out of it it's so hard to describe to people that haven't been through it and for me as well i'm not, i wasn't like at the time of meeting him i wasn't like a shy meek
0: mm, submissive person, person yeah. so was vulnerable to it yeah. yeah
1: which you they're the types you know like any standards little mo you know getting yeah. abused by trevor men or,
0: and women as well by and the way. Yeah, yeah
1: and men and Actually, it's interesting because I have a friend whose brother is completely, from what she's told me, is going through this at the moment. And I said, he is in a really bad, coercive, abusive relationship and you need to try and get him away from this person and open up to you. And she's like, well, he's, we don't have any contact with him now, you know, and I was no, like, it's going to get happens. bad. It's, yeah. I said, because I was lucky and my lifeline was the fact that I was in this shared house. So... Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, men, women, whoever, you have someone that you feel might be slowly losing their sort of like independence. And another thing I didn't actually have to go through was the financial thing. Mm. Like a lot of people have their like cards taken off of them and... um, Or kids. Yeah, or kids. So, yeah, I'm not downplaying what happened to me, but, you know, it could have got worse and worse and worse till I lost everything. Mm. So I'm thankful in a way that even though... The sort of like crescendo of events was horrific. I escaped.
0: Do you think if you hadn't been in that house share, you'd still be here? Um, I know it's a hard question to sort of answer hypothetically, but I,
1: you know, I mm, I don't know. I don't mm. know. I feel like my f- my friends saved my life mm. because, luckily, even though that sounds strange, the events. Was so we'd the main instance where I ended up breaking off with him. This is when he had me locked in the room, was choking me, and luckily my friend was next door and was like, "What is going on?" I heard some kind of you know ruckus. Probably yeah. heard him actually because yeah. he was so drunk he didn't realize how loud he was being. Because you know a lot of the times it would be very like hushed tones and like shut up, shut up. You be know, a conscious like, effort yeah, to keep. Whereas it this down. time yeah. he was like shut, you know, like really. Mm in such a rage, punching fists through walls and all this sort of stuff that she just managed to like barge in and, and she was like, what the hell are you, what's going on? And like the shock of it all luckily blocked the doorway. I ran out, ran downstairs and that's the moment I feel like she saved my life because I honestly, I've never had that experience since, thank God. But that thing of, he had something in his eyes and my body went to jelly that I thought he can he's gonna kill me here i can see it in his face he, that's what he wants to do and so yeah obviously that ended with fortunately there'd been another instant uh instance earlier in that day where we'd come back from notting hill carnival and we'd got a taxi and he hadn't paid the taxi so the actual taxi driver could see all this kerfuffle going on and called the police now in hindsight i should have pressed like charges against him or whatever but i just wanted him out of my life so mm. he ended up packing up and moving away and i've never heard from him since thank Mm. god changed my phone number and goodbye
0: i want to go back a little bit if we can to chart that journey up to that moment Mm. because the most traumatic form of abuse you experience and it's something that i've gone through but in a different age sarah was sexual abuse yeah and it it also involved some physical abuse at the same time if i'm right in saying Mm. so if you felt comfortable can you just tell me about this and you can go into as much or little details you feel comfortable.
1: Yeah, so there's like a handful of instances, but things that sort of like ring out are, you know, he sometimes would get drunk, take himself to bed, which would be like thank you know, like the the sigh of relief, like he's asleep. Thank God. But then sometimes if he's asleep and I got into bed, he would wake up and still be drunk mm. and aggressive or trying to have sex with Mm. me and if i'd say no he'd be like oh come on and 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 sort of like then again he'd be be playing the victim like why don't you you know like he couldn't have been less attractive to me at this point but you know why don't you want to have sex with me so i remember on this instance and even looking back now i wouldn't have even considered this a form of sexual abuse but he sort of convinced me into having sex with him even though i didn't want to and then afterwards Literally, because obviously he could tell from my face, or you know how I wasn't like responsive really in the in doing it. Literally grabbed me. He's quite a strong guy. Picked me up and threw me naked across the room. And I was just remember sitting there in the carpet, and it's like so vivid, looking at him and him looking at me like I was some kind of like animal. And I'm sitting there naked on the floor, having just had to have sex with him, willingly, not willingly. At the, at that time, I would have said, you know, well. I could have just got up and left the room. But in my mind, I'm thinking, if I did that, what's he going to do when I come back? So did it. And, you know, just these horrific things. And it's like, somebody you love should not be treating you like Mm. this. And it's not okay. And, you know, I've never felt more vulnerable ever in my life.
0: Did you feel like, in a way, your femininity or yourself was being deconstructed through it?
1: I feel like he just wanted to have every bit of power he could from me and I feel like that was to make me feel weak and him to feel like, in inverted commas, a man. It all stemmed from the fact that there were like three couples and the girls all went out to a gig and the guy stayed home and when I got home and he was in bed, the guys were like, oh, he was just a nightmare, he was really drunk, we put him to bed and then him feeling like you shouldn't have left me like why did you go out of your friends i'm your boyfriend you know i'm i'm your man like it's a very you know.
0: weak mentality by the way i, I mm. mean pe- i know you were saying how he was physically quite strong but this is a very weak mentality yeah. from a man
1: oh yeah like really yeah if you break it down it's like completely pathetic like he yeah. was just trying in any which way to show that he had control Mm. And so, yeah, so that was an instance which was really bad. And the next day I spoke to him about it. And that was a denial. That was a, that didn't happen. I was like, well, how drunk were you to not remember that? I said it happened. And I actually, from somewhere, said to him, if that happens again, we are over. And I just, because I thought that was a turning point for me. I was like, just that image of me sort of like, knees up to my chin sort of thing in the corner naked looking at someone that I'm in a relationship with that's just done this to me I thought I'm not going to be that person like I can't like you know all the verbal stuff I find embarrassing but this this can't happen so I spoke to him the next day then it was like tears and you can't leave me and da 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 I'm gonna try better and I remember um, my mum meeting me that day and it never really got sort of resolved and then obviously we stayed together and for another like a short while after that another few months he was on best behavior absolute best behavior to my parents to me it was like okay maybe he has changed and again i'm like you idiot it doesn't take one conversation with someone to make them change but he literally he did but he couldn't keep up the fast for too Mm -hmm. long because then that's
0: when it came to a head before notting hill there was one more event which i guess broke the camel's back or or i guess the part of the camel's back if you want to put it that way it happened through a trip to Cornwall to see his family not your family can you tell me about those events
1: yeah so so yeah he's changed you know like great he's on his best behavior because I wouldn't have felt safe agreeing to go on this trip had he not put on this charade yeah what it was wasn't it Yeah, yeah exactly so We drove down, obviously, I don't know if, you know, from London to to Cornwall was like a long drive. Everything was fine, met his family, um, we had like lunch and stuff. I don't remember the exact mood prior. Sorry, I don't remember the exact, I can't remember the sort of like... Timeline, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the ins and outs of it, but there is like one big event that sticks out, which is, he was like, right, I really want you to meet like my best mate. And his wife, and let's we're gonna go round to their house for like dinner, and he was in a great mood. Obviously, he was with his best mate. You know, he doesn't get to see him much, and I was getting on really well with them as a couple. Like we had a really as you would because you get on with most people. Oh, thanks, mate. And it was just a really nice evening, and I just thought, oh, you know, a part of me was like, even I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, but thinking. I'm glad I stayed with him now because this side of him I really love and he's in his natural, like, with his people and, you know, it's we're having a great time. And obviously there was, like, a lot of drinks involved and people were drinking, but he seemed all right. And I thought, okay, that's great. As the night went on and on and on, it was like a real sesh because obviously they hadn't seen each other and I was a bit nervous. I was meeting these people that I didn't really know and you don't want to be, like, the party pooper. They drink this thing called mead. Right. which is like really strong cornish string. they're like you've got to try this you know you're not from here or like
0: think <laughs> of his hogsmeade from harry potter that's <laughs> it yeah, looks yeah, like it yeah. do you know what I mean? yeah. and well, uh, based off it to be fair and yeah. also
1: it's disgusting <laughs> no offense <laughs> to anyone that likes it and yeah we got progressively more and more drunk and uh, i was unfortunately very unwell in the toilet was mm. being sick but like not all over their carpet or anything like that just like quietly mm. took myself off was sick he knocks on the door he's like are you all right i know shock right and i was like oh, i'm being sick and he was all like, right you need to go to bed so i went upstairs to the room that we're staying in went to bed in the middle of the night at nowhere like shock awoke out of my sleep he like drags me off of the bed throws me onto the floor of this little bedroom and says you are so embarrassing in his but- parents house this is at his best friend's house his best so we- friend's yeah. house Ugh. Yeah, he was like, you have humiliated me. I can't believe this. They don't like you. Like, you are just so embarrassing. I can't believe you are sick in their house. You are disgusting. I'm sleeping in here. You sleep on the floor. Along the lines of, like, the dog that you are. Like, horrific, like, language. Not a blanket, not a pillow. Just stay there. And I'm in this house of these people I've just met. I'm obviously embarrassed i am embarrassed you know like getting sick when you're drunk you know like contain yourself but like it wasn't embarrassing no, you know it no, wasn't no. like the
0: quiet sick is my yeah, favorite sort. Of and
1: sick. <laughs> the fact that he's talking to me out of the blue like this i'm now scared that he's gonna
0: the charade's gone now yeah, yeah the
1: charade's gone he's got really drunk again and now i'm sleeping on the floor like a discarded stray and i wake up in the morning on the floor look over to the bed and he's not even there So it's not like he's woken up in the morning and gone, oh, come on, Mm. sorry. He's got up, got dressed, gone downstairs. And it continued basically from that point till we left their house, all the way home, belittling me in the car on the way home. He just wouldn't let it drop. Not even to the point of, hang on a minute, you're the one that made me sleep on the floor. What about your behaviour? Because he obviously felt so bad about himself. Mm. It was just all projected onto me to the point where we then we were driving instead of back to London, we were driving to my parents to see them. I think maybe on the Easter Monday, it was like an Easter weekend. And he was basically just like, got to the house and was so nice as pie to them. I was like, how have you gone from, I've had seven hours of hell in this car, a night's sleep on the floor, like an animal. And then we've got to my mum and dad's and some of our family friends are there as well. And you are Mr. Nice Guy. Mr. Like oh, look at all these the gifts you've bought everyone yeah. from Cornwall. It brewed up in me so much that I just exploded at my parents for something. And I went upstairs and they were like, what is going on? And I was like, now I'm taken out on the people that I love. I need to do need to do something about this. I obviously did it because then fast forward, then there was like the final event, which mm. was the Notting Hill Carnival. But that trip, like again, like I haven't actually been back to Cornwall either but uh no, not. Not, I'm not ruling it out but I'm more worried that you know he, he's he's around there so mm.
0: by this point after the trip to Cornwall and then the events at Notting Hill Carnival how much of yourself was left do you think
1: oh d- none which is yeah I feel like I didn't recognize myself which was the worst thing and then I was angry at myself for allowing it to happen to me I spoke about victim blaming. I was the biggest blamer. I was blaming Mm. myself. Like, you should have helped him more. You should have recognised it earlier. You should have helped him with his drinking. You should have told him to get therapy for his PTSD. You should have spotted the signs. all of this... Instead of,
0: he should have done this. He should have done that. Yeah, or he He should should not have done... Or she should not have done that, correct.
1: yeah. Yeah, so... And it was, like, such embarrassment. Somebody and this is so disrespectful to victims, but like for me, I was like, somebody, and arrogant, somebody like me doesn't go through abuse. Like, come on, that's just for, like, pushovers yeah. or, like, quiet little meek, shy, you know, like, how how's that happened to me? People aren't going believe, to believe it. You don't you think know? it'll
0: become your reality.
1: Yeah, and people would never believe that somebody with the confidence and the independence such as me, this has happened, or she must be exaggerating it, or I just thought people just will think it's, a load of bullshit. Like, mm. she's just, like, elaborating on the story or fantasizing it in some Or you've gone way.
0: nuts and you're making this stuff up.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, they just maybe had a volatile relationship and it was, like, two-handed. Mm. But it was only years after, you know, which is strange. I did the runaway to Australia, didn't fix it, came back, started trying to help out people. I had a friend that uh, her boyfriend cheated on her and I said, well, oh, come and live with me for a bit and just try to busy myself doing bits and bobs for my parents, like keeping busy, having tidbit relationships, nothing serious with any man. Is that a
0: scar after it? Is it a trust yeah. issue?
1: Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And it's kind of like that thing of, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but like people would say things like, oh, you're such a lovely girl. Why, why are you single? And it's kind of like, I wonder if people knew they would ask me that sort of thing. But maybe they still would because this all happened 10 years ago. But it took me five years to even address it. So five years ago, everything came to a head where I basically maxed out on I'm helping everyone as much as I can, avoiding my own issues, not really having proper relationships with people, putting off like dealing with it. And yeah, just started feeling anxious all the time. And then the anxiety would lead to bouts of like depression, not feeling good enough, feeling like a burden to everyone. And that was a delayed response when I finally slowed down a bit to what happened to me because I never sought out any sort of therapy or help which now is crazy to me I'm like if I knew somebody that went through what I went through and then just went to Australia thinking that would fix it then back straight into work trying to get on with regular life not addressing these issues I would say stop go to therapy it's not a bad word therapy is very you know it's and luckily I think I told you <laughs> randomly my best friend one of my oldest friends is a CBT therapist and she came over to my flat just for like lunch or something and she was like are you okay like you're not really responding to messages not really seeing you much lately you seem to be taking a lot on and I just broke down to her and I was like you know what I've had like a few days where I've just felt really low suicidal just thought what is the point and she was like okay right we need to Sort something for you, she's like, Would you go to CBT just to start processing these thoughts and realigning them? Um, I'm not sure if people listening are, you know, there's probably a lot of people with far greater expertise than me, but CBT therapy essentially rewires your thought processes from things that are not necessarily happening to something that's more realistic so mm. stoicism
0: going. in a can of guest yeah yeah yeah
1: it. yeah so i went and i got like 10 sessions of that and it did fix the initial cycle of not feeling or feeling anxious feeling depressed feeling like
0: a burden did people pleasing people
1: completely people pleasing trying to help everybody else rather than myself because i didn't feel worthy of mm. help and honestly, it was like a light bulb moment for me and I would recommend it. And You know, like different things work for different people. But my friend who's the th- CBT therapist, she was like, you've got to make sure though, if you're going to do it, do everything they ask of you because it will help. Like the homework tasks, mm. the journaling, like all of these things. And honestly, the cloud got lifted. Um, so how it
0: felt? A fog?
1: Complete fog that had been slowly, the clouds were coming in over that last five years of, from when I had the abusive relationship to now and that th- feeling of I don't really know who I am now because am I the person am I going to try and be the person I was before the abuse am I trying to be a different person now am I ever going to be the same and just that sort of feeling of yeah just like I felt a bit lost so the therapy really helped at least get me back to a stage where I felt like somebody I recognized a bit more and What's then, the answer to that question then Somebody that is very positive, somebody that tries things, somebody that loves adventure. My light had gone out, basically, is what had happened, because he poured a massive, you know, <laughs> tank of water all over it, because he obviously wasn't happy with himself, I don't know, whatever reasons it was, I'm not here to unpack his shit. But, yeah, it was just the the fact that I hadn't recognised that that had affected me so much. And people around me, some people knew what had happened, so were like, oh, okay, maybe Australia, that's what you want to do, go to Australia. Other people didn't know the story at all. So they've just seen me sort of bumbling through life, thinking, oh, she's had that adventure again.
0: Now she's got another one.
1: Yeah, but I was miserable. And then depressed, suicidal, to the point where it all finally caught up with me. I got the therapy, and it helped massively. Now, that therapy was about four or five years ago now, And since I do revert back to some of the techniques and and things that I learned from it, but really that therapy helped me with the initial, like the things that were happening then. So like the anxiety, depression, I do feel I still need to maybe go back to therapy to unpack what the causes were for that what happened in the uh, with the abuse and everything because otherwise it could rear its head again it's still
0: EMDMR I'll give you my number for my therapist maybe see if you want to give that a try yeah I mean
1: yeah I feel like I don't want to leave it just in case it rears its head and these things need to be sorted out so
0: Mm. let's reflect now if we can what have all these experiences in your mental health journey taught you about yourself Sarah and If you could go back and talk to the Sarah who was enjoying life to the full before the domestic abuse, the Sarah who was having to hide the abuse from her friends and family, or maybe the Sarah who was trying to get her life back on track, what would you say to her, knowing what you do now?
1: I would say that, first of all, it's going to get better. You have plenty of people you can trust, people who love you. You are a great person. You're not this person that you were told you were. You're talented, you work hard and you're a nice person. So just, you know, look at yourself how others look at you and continue to live life and enjoy it rather than hiding from what's happened to you. Try and face it a bit more, work through it and yeah, keep going. Just keep going.
0: Do you feel worthy of yourself now?
1: Yeah, a lo- I mean, there are elements that need working on. We all have
0: elements. Yeah. We all have <laughs>
1: elements, yeah. But this is the thing. What happened to me happened 10 years ago, and people like to put time limits on you for when you should feel better.
0: The ticking class. People do that a lot with grief. Yeah. yeah,
1: like, why are you not okay? Why have you not had a serious boyfriend in, like, you know, a long time? You know, it's been years. Like, surely, you know, what's going on? For me... I don't feel guilty about that anymore. I Good. used to feel worried about how it affected other people. Now I'm just like, I've got reasons. If you want to know them,
0: listen to this podcast. <laughs> but That's what you have to do now. All you have to do is just go, shut up, listen to this yeah, and fuck off. <laughs> yeah, and if you've got questions afterwards, <laughs> yeah.
1: please come and see me. Yeah. But for me, yeah, I'm unapologetic for it now. It's like, this happened to me. I'm dealing with it in my own time. I am dealing with it now. That big part of it was I wasn't dealing with it. And I'm in a really good place. So, yeah.
0: We have come to our final topic of conversation, Sarah. And it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we can. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So, firstly, we are in challenging times at time of recording for everyone's mental health but how would you say your mental health is at the moment mate?
1: Well overall good like you say we're all going through a weird challenging time with this pandemic and the uncertainty of are we going to get locked down I'm going to have to spend like bouts of time completely on my own again which you know to a lot of people they're like that sounds great but in lockdown one I was living alone and I didn't see anyone for about three months other than the man in Tesco's and it was challenging, but and then it got it got to the point where I got used to it, you know. And mm. then it was like seeing other people was the challenge. Mm. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to go out anymore. So overall, mental health right now is in a good place. We've all moved into this. This is how Freddie and I know each other. Uh, we've all moved into this building. Got our first properties this year. So there's a lot of personal achievements. And when you come to the end of a calendar year, you sort of look back and think, what have I? achieved or what what yeah I
0: can actually say I've achieved something I've got something (laughs) I'm in it I'm sitting in it I'm in the flat Uh. so
1: yeah so that's a big like tick especially for me I'm 36 a lot of my friends are married and they have children and things like that and and mortgage you know so now it's hard to not compare yourself to where people are at in their lives I try not to because I have a very good life but for me I really wanted to get on the property ladder and Mm. and so for me achieving that has given me such a
0: boost a
1: boost yeah and i feel i feel really good about myself i feel proud
0: Mm, you should and And if you feel comfortable saying what mental health issues or conditions if any do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life
1: yeah so the anxiety does come back occasionally and when i start having thoughts you know like oh these people are going to think I'm an idiot or I'm not good enough or slight imposter syndrome perhaps at work I go back to my CBT and I just think okay is this something that someone has actually said yes or no no so how do you know it to be true I don't do you want to ask them find out no okay well then put that to the side then you know so just like old school and that sounds like a long process for every single thought or anxiety but it's like really quick in the mind when you do it it's just when I lay out like some kind of workflow (laughs) it sounds really long but yeah I would I carry the tools of CBT with me now only because I can spot when a bout of anxiety is gonna rear its head and then I know that would probably could lead to depression so I try and nip that in the bud right at the get-go now and that's what CBT gave me.
0: What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health?
1: I feel I was fairly young, probably around about seven or eight years old. That feeling of knowing that I was mixed race mm-hmm. and going to like family events and that sort of self-doubt you know like oh I feel a little bit left out I'm not sure why yeah so I would say around about seven or eight years old pretty sort of like in tune with my emotions from a young age had very overactive sort of mind in that sense so I knew that my mind was like some kind of tool I guess
0: you know. Mm. Can you tell me about the first conversation you have with someone about your mental health so who was it with what did you say and what impact did it have did it feel like a big burden had been lifted off you or bigger weight had been lifted off your shoulders or did it seem like something quite normal insignificant and easy to do
1: i feel i didn't really speak to anyone about my mental health in like a sort of like in depth way or perhaps in a sort of sit down chat until i was probably in my early 20s Mm -hmm. you know back in the early 2000s even mental health wasn't something people spoke about I'm not saying that everybody talks about it now but it's a lot better than say 20 years ago but working at the summer camp they really encouraged us to talk to the kids about it and therefore we had to talk about ourselves with each other in our sort of like training and and things like that so yeah I would say it felt scary to do it it felt alien to do it. It didn't feel like it was something that was like natural because I hadn't really done much of it. Whereas now, I'll talk about it all day long. You know, I think it's really important too.
0: What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health outside of Australia?
1: Outside the whole <laughs> continent <laughs> of yeah. Australasia? Yeah. Things that trigger my mental health are... I still have a thing about being liked. I'm a people pleaser. So if I feel that people don't like me, I will chuck the kitchen sink at them until... They see something in me that they that like. It can almost
0: be a detriment, to be honest. Oh yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and the fact that me is me should be enough for them. Why do I need them? Why do I need them to like me? You know, for a start.
0: I'm seeing the cogs were, pal. I'm seeing the cogs were. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so yeah, that's something that I have to deal with a lot. I like people, and I like people to like me. I'm like, if I feel like I'm a good person, why can't people see that? Which obviously is not my issue to to worry about but i do
0: and then conversely what tools or methods or things in life do you find that improve your mental health or help you feel better
1: feeling better talking helps so whether that is over a glass of wine with your best mate whether or not it's a family lunch obviously you can have different levels of intimacy with different people on how you open up but i feel like the more you do it the less scary it is the more familiar it becomes. And yeah, I feel like talking helps. I know a lot of people say exercise. (laughs) I mean, I don't mind a bit of exercise and I do feel better afterwards, but it's not my Mm go-to. My go-to is being with people probably because I can spend a lot of time on my own. I live alone. I like being by myself. I went on holiday to Greece by myself in the summer, but being with people, that does sort of make me feel good.
0: Have you tried anything that doesn't work?
1: Getting drunk. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know,
0: like. Did you really think that was going to work? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, like drinking your troubles away, you know, like that old sort of thing of, oh, don't worry about it. I think that thing of just leave it, like, don't worry about it is another way of saying brush it under the carpet. You know, if you're going through something, work through it. Don't try and put a band-aid over it with one night out because the next day, trust me, you're going to feel 10 times worse, not just hangover, anxiety, all of these sort of things
0: how do you support friends in your own social group that might be going through a poor period of mental health or have mental health conditions whether that be men or women
1: yeah so i i feel like if you've had experiences yourself you're more prone to spotting signs not to say that people who haven't had any mental health issues can't spot signs but you do pick up on things and my way is just to sort of check in with people, send a, been thinking about you, or I'm very good at compliments and things like that, you know, like picking up on, oh, you did really well and that, you know, it might be a bit cheesy, but just send a text. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: What's the best book or I call mental health Bible you've read for your mental health?
1: Ooh. So the best book I've read, and this isn't just, well, this isn't just for my mental health, but. In general, it's a book called The Last Lecture. And it's written by a guy. And now you can ask me his name. can't remember
0: it. <laughs> Don't worry, I won't. Uh, he, he, um, People w- can Google it. Yeah.
1: He was a lecturer. And when lecturers retire, they give a last lecture on everything they've learned in life or about their specialist subject. However, this guy was diagnosed with cancer, so he was going to be passing away pretty soon. It was terminal. And so he is literally giving his last lecture. And it's all little antidotes about life experiences and relationships advice and, and, you know, coming from the perspective of someone that doesn't have any life almost left. And it really makes you appreciate the little things. It makes you remember not to sweat the small stuff it makes you appreciative of people in your life and yeah it was just it was just yeah it just sort of like reassures you as well that there's ups and downs in life but it's what you sort of like take from it so yeah i would say that
0: and as a final question and this is a broad one what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if they want to do it?
1: I think a big part of that is to feel included, is not to exclude. This is why I love what you're doing with this, Fred, because so easily, especially on the topic that we've discussed today, it's focused on women, but there are a lot of men that go through things that I have, and especially men's mental health. I don't want anyone to feel like there's a... An invitation only to discuss it. You know, you have to have gone through something traumatic to talk about mental health. You could just be here every Everyone day. Everyone goes through stuff. Exactly. So I feel what we can do is just talk about it more, like it's the norm. You know, you go to hospital if you feel unwell. You go to the doctors. Why is mental health not discussed like that? And I think in schools, if it starts at a young age, it becomes normal around family dinner tables, and families talk more with each other. I think that will help. For me. We weren't really a family that discussed stuff. I came from a really loving I You know, I you know, have a really loving family. But do we open up and talk about feelings?
0: Difficult things. Not mm. really,
1: no. I can echo that. And, you know, that is just how I grew up. And I don't want to then, if I ever have a family of my own, have that same pattern. I would like to break that. I would like things to be open and on the table, so to speak.
0: Sarah Essef, thank you so much for coming on the Just Check In podcast.
1: Thanks for having me and have a really nice Christmas and a good new year and I look forward to listening back.
0: Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to my next door neighbour, Sarah, for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. Every pod I do about domestic abuse, I feel a huge privilege in sharing these stories from men and women. So I hope this will help you venters understand what it looks like how to spot the red flags, how you can support somebody in your life who might be experiencing it and how to give them a break. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on all the usual social media channels to your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, you can give us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us further, you can support our Patreon. That's going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation by going to our GoFundMe. That link is on our link tree and across all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent.